Now turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2, and this evening I'm going to be looking at verses 11 through 25. So let's stand together to hear God's word. Exodus 22, verses 11 through 25. Now hear the word of God. Exodus 2 and verse 11. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And so he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? And then he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of the matter, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And then the shepherds came and drove them away. <coughs> but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. And so he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah's daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. He called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And so God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. This is the very word of God. Amen. Father, we ask for your spirit to teach us these things. Every word of God is here for our edification. And we pray that your spirit would open up these words to apply it to our very lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Here we come to the life of Moses and to review where we are in redemptive history. With the death of Jacob, we move through a period of 400 years of darkness and silence. Think of it as a time of silence in which there was no prophet, a 400-year silence when it comes to divine revelation. And it's interesting, there are these three periods of 400 years in redemptive history that has these 400-year periods of silence that's broken up by the birth of a baby, and that's what's happening here. With the death of Jacob after 400 years, there's a baby that is born, and that is Moses, and this looks forward to the, the birth of our Savior. I believe each time we have a sense that another baby is to be born, and then after Joshua, now we have Moses and then Joshua, so we have a period of time of about another 100 years or 120 years, and uh, with the death of Joshua, we encounter another 400 years of relative darkness, and then another baby is born to Hannah, baby Samuel, and he comes to anoint David as king. Then with the final revelation of Malachi, we encounter another 400 years of darkness. 
in another period of silence in which there is no, no revelation, no, no prophet, until the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of babies, the baby Jesus. So we have these three periods of darkness, these three periods of slavery as well. Remember, there's 400 years of slavery to Egypt, then 400 years of slavery to Midian, to the Philistines, and to other tribes, Canaanitish tribes. And then, again, after David and after some of the kings, there's a slavery uh, to Babylon, Persia, Greece, Antiochus Epiphanes, and then to Rome. That's another 400 years of slavery for God's people. And then comes deliverance. So we have a deliverance that comes by Moses, a deliverance that comes by David, and then a deliverance that finally comes by Jesus. So we have these three periods of 400 years, three periods of darkness, three periods of slavery, and then each is broken up with the birth of a baby, and then we come to a period of deliverance. And then finally, with the birth of Christ, comes a, the final deliverance for God's people. So the picture and the pattern is slavery. God's people are enslaved in the providence of God. We see this picture that develops for us. The picture is stark. When we think about slavery, I want to define slavery a little bit because that is what's happening to God's people here in the land of Egypt. Remember, they didn't start out that way, but that's what they fell into over time was slavery to the Egyptians. And so slavery is the idea of being bought and sold being owned and controlled by others. And there is very much an identity that is taken up by slavery. If you're a slave, you're a slave, you're a permanent slave. There's nothing that can break that, uh, that status for you outside of somebody redeeming you from that slavery. And that's what redemption is. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? Redemption or a ransom is paid and that ransom for us is the blood of Jesus Christ. But there is an identity for those that are fallen into enslavement. Uh, there, there is a state whereby you just cannot be free. You just think about you know being handcuffed and leg cuffed and and not being able to go anywhere. It's a restrictive position. Slaves could not own property. Slaves were often separated from their families. Slaves were beaten, branded with hot irons, mutilated in various ways. Uh, They were restricted from going places. They had no upward mobility and no hope for advancement or improvement. They had no real hope for their progeny, for their children and grandchildren, and uh, no hope for the future. So that's what it is to be a slave. So just so we could describe it here, uh, God ordained that his people would be taken to slavery. This is evidently part of what God wanted for his people. He wanted to teach them something. Uh, Chattel slavery is an outward demonstration of an inward reality. And and that's why it was so important for God's people to be enslaved to Egypt and then, of course, go through that period of of redemption. Uh, God redeemed them. God delivered them from Egypt. And so this is a picture of our slavery to sin and to the devil. And, And God wants us to understand that the spiritual slavery to which all of us are brought into upon birth, is far worse than this outward form of slavery. He wants to see it. He wants us to experience it in an outward way, often so we can uh, understand what's going on inwardly. Now, at creation, you need to understand that God did not create man to be enslaved. 
That was not God's intent for, for human life on earth. He intended for Adam to be a steward for himself, for God, taking care of God's property, but not to be enslaved to anybody else. So it's not God's will uh, that, uh, that his people be enslaved. And certainly that's not God's will for those who are redeemed in Jesus Christ either. So God did not create man to be enslaved. And yet when man fell into the garden, what happened? He was subjected to slavery to the devil. And so slavery became a way of life for the whole world, meaning outward forms of slavery as well, enslavement to masters. And uh, eventually it was Christians who abolished slavery. Slavery went on for, well, at least 4,000 years. Immediately in the Didascali Apostolorum, the very earliest documents of the Christian church, what do you find? But that after communion, they would take up a collection. Why would they take up the collection? After communion, each Sunday, for manumission. What is manumission? Manumission is to buy uh, the, the freedom for uh, slaves that were attending the church. They wanted to be sure that anybody who was attending the church was no longer enslaved to the master. And there were some very rich people in places like Constantinople and other places like that uh, that, that would take almost all of their money now, there were some of the richest Christians in the Roman Empire would take all of their money and buy the freedom of sometimes five or six or eight or ten thousand slaves. So, so it was Christians that brought about the end of slavery. And of course, it took a very long time for that to happen. It was Patrick. It was Athelstan. It was Anselm. They fought slavery down. It was abolished by Anselm of Canterbury in about 1100 AD and then reintroduced by very corrupt and wicked popes and kings. Uh, Popes first in the 1460s and then, of course, the uh, Stuarts, Charles II, James II in the 15 or 1670s. So there's a great deal of bondage in the world. And this is the fundamental problem is that there's so much bondage to sin and to Satan, uh, to fear, to idols, and to despair. And it still exists all around us. And I I do think we need to wake up to that reality. This is a lesson that God wanted to teach his people, that the problem wasn't just an external form of chattel slavery, but we're all by nature enslaved uh, to the devil and to sin. And, And so... Jesus came, of course, to set the captives free, but his message was so offensive. And the thing that uh, astounded me several months ago as I was comparing Scripture with Scripture and found that the, 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 the most offensive message that Jesus ever brought in his ministry, his three-year ministry, appears to be this very point. He, w- he wanted to point out that people were chained hand and foot to the devil, blind to their condition, and... Uh, and yet they very much hated that message. They didn't want to hear it. They resisted uh, this reality or this truth very much. Think about John eight thirty one when Jesus was talking to the Jews. Who believed him? It was very interesting. There were some Jews that believed in him. They were evidently sort of, I don't know, believing a few things that he said. Um, but they weren't very committed to him. And so he said to them in John eight thirty one, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and truth will set you free. Well, that immediately was offensive to them. They said, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, stop for just a moment. That, of course, isn't true. is isn't true at all. 
But they had such a pride about themselves, you know, that they, they, they really believed somehow. They'd never been enslaved to Egypt. They'd never been enslaved to Median. They'd never been enslaved to the Babylonians. Never been enslaved to anybody else. And he says, how is it then that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So that's the point that Jesus drove home in his ministry. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. But if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. To which we say, hallelujah. Yes, amen. Uh, But now listen to this. Very next thing he says, verse 37. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. So this is the very thing that they didn't want to hear. Now, how does the chapter end? So they picked up the stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So the most offensive message that Jesus brought, and I believe the most offensive message that we bring to America today is what? You are slaves to sin, and you need the redemption of Jesus to set you free. And people hate the message. They absolutely hate the message. The most offensive thing you could ever say to anybody is that you are a slave to your sin. And you need Jesus Christ to redeem you and to set you free from that sin of whatever it is, anger or pornography or lust or covetousness or bitterness or whatever, unforgiveness, whatever it is, that you're a slave to that sin. And you absolutely need the Son of God himself to, to set you free and to redeem you by his blood. You need it and you need to believe in him today for that. And that's the message that causes so many people to want to kill the messenger. Same thing in Luke chapter 4. The very same thing. Again, these were the most negative responses that Jesus received in all of his ministry. They, they took up rocks to kill him in John chapter 8. Then Luke chapter 4, same thing. And I don't have to read the whole message. But he, 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 he stood up there in the... Uh, synagogue of Nazareth, and he, he read from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the acceptable year of the Lord, that is the Jubilee. He came to proclaim the Jubilee, and then how did it end? Again, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue, filled with wrath, rose up and drove them out of the town and brought them to the brow of the hill, which in their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went away. So this was their response to the message. They did not want to admit their lowly condition. They didn't want to admit that they were slaves. And, and I, I believe this to be a very important reason why God wanted to teach his people a lesson by enslaving them to Egypt. Hebrews 2.14 again we find, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Jesus himself Likewise, share in the same, and that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Uh, this, this is the message that Jesus came to bring us. This is the reason he came for our redemption. So why the slavery? Again, I believe it's supposed to be instructive and illustrative. The condition of slavery was supposed to point to the deeper problem of God's people. So Moses appears on the scene. Verse 11, now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. Now remember, he'd been raised in Pharaoh's household. That he went out to his brother and looked at their burdens And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So Moses is very concerned about the people of God, enslaved uh, to the world, enslaved to Egypt, enslaved to the devil. Moses was concerned about his brothers, concerned about the slavery 
to which the people of God were subjected. It's also interesting, Nehemiah is is similarly concerned about the matter of the Jews enslaving their sons and daughters upon the return from Babylon, as if they had not learned the lesson. Jeremiah, remember, also was very concerned, and God communicating that message through the prophet Jeremiah, very concerned that they were not willing to set their their slaves free during the year of Jubilee. This, this was so important, and uh, it was the last straw. As I see it in the book of Jeremiah, it's the last straw. And uh, because of that, God threw his people back into slavery, back into exile. So again, God is committed to this message of, of setting the captives free. And yet these people were returning to slavery. And there is something inappropriate about this, something very wrong about God's covenant community enslaved to the world. This, this is something that we should find abhorrent ourselves, making immediate application to ourselves. I'm not, not just, you know, if we saw half of our congregation uh, committed to chattel slavery as it was in the South or something like that, but also just, just the idea of being enslaved uh, to sin, to Satan, and to the world. In, in any form, think of what Second Peter chapter 2 tells us concerning those who fall back into slavery to the world, speaking loud boasts of folly, uh, these, uh, these false teachers enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after... These folks escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. So so it's a very pitiful thing to to become a slave or to to go back into slavery. What what is so pitiful about uh, slavery but that the slave is forced to do whatever the master tells them to do? And they are subject to to his beatings if they don't do it. Now, I believe that this is the, 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 the spiritual slavery to which all men by nature subject themselves. They are obedient to Satan. They do what Satan tells them to do. They do what sin or the flesh or the world tells them to do. They, 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 they are so enslaved that they couldn't think of doing anything else but whatever their lusts tell them to do. They obey their lusts. They are slaves of corruption and slaves of lust, is uh, what Peter tells us here. They have a ring jammed through their nose, and they are led around by the master. Think about, you know, that's what slavery is. I'm trying to describe it. You know, somebody putting a, 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 a a ring through your nose, like this big old three-inch ring, and then dragging you around by that. So you you wind up doing or going anywhere the master wants you to go or doing whatever the master wants you uh, to do. So so this is a concern. Moses is concerned about the people of God who were enslaved to Egypt, enslaved to the world. He's concerned that they are not only having to do everything their masters tell them to do, but also that they must subject themselves to the beatings. So Moses intervenes. Moses reacts. We see that in verse 12. So he looked this way and that way. When he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him 
in the sand. Moses has a strong sense of justice and a sense of mercy, wants to save God's people from the slavery and the brutal treatment at the hands of the Egyptians. He has compassion for the people of God and takes vengeance upon the persecutors. Now, just briefly, I'm trying to draw in the spiritual application just for a moment. Do you know what Jesus did, you know, in order to bring about our redemption? And and later on, we find this is what God did at the Red Sea as well. But when God brings about our redemption, what does he do? He takes vengeance upon our enemies, and then he rescues the fair maiden. So there's this violent action that takes place in redemption. Redemption is presented throughout Scripture as a very violent thing. Jesus rides in, destroys the enemy, and then, and then purchases our redemption. So, so it's, it's a both and. It's, it's a rescue and a ransom as well as a vengeance taken upon the, uh, the slave masters. That's why Satan's head is crushed in the process. So, now, what can we say about this? Moses is, is taking sides, and I think this is the most important uh, passage in terms of the application of Hebrews 11, the passage concerning Moses' faith. Uh, Moses is commended for what he did here. Moses acted uh, in compassion. Moses acted according to the, the call that God had upon his life. Now, some would ask the question, did Moses have the authority to kill the Egyptian? In the sense that he was God's appointed leader of the children of Israel, I would say that he had the authority to do so. But there are three things to take into consideration when we consider these forms of redemption. First, we have to consider whether the solution is merely superficial. Secondly, whether the solution is lawless. And thirdly, whether the solution is unwise. And I think it's possible that there's a question of wisdom here. As Moses is still somewhat of a young man, and I I believe that he's acting under the authority of God. He is God's appointed redeemer for his people. But, But there is, I think, a possibility that Moses is not acting wisely. Now, let me give you an example of, of the question of authority. Fixing the problem of abortion by killing abortionists is not fixing the problem for, for all three reasons here. First reason is lawless. Second, it's unwise. And thirdly, it's, it's superficial. Attempts are sometimes made to short-circuit God's process for bringing justice into the world. And I think as Christians, we do need to grapple with the question of whether it's appropriate to engage in revolutionary activities. How do we fix the problem of slavery? Now, in the ultimate sense, the way to fix the problem of chattel slavery is by way of redemption, by way of Jesus' redemption that he brings. Because you've heard the phrase before that either it will be governed by God or by God will be governed. That is, either you be governed by God's laws, or we self-governed by the laws of God, or we will, by God's providence, be subjecting ourselves to higher and higher levels of tyranny. So this principle, I believe, stands. 
that because of the transgression of the land, many are the princes thereof. So we, we have to be cautious with this and know that before the gospel comes, it would be impossible to eradicate slavery. You had to bring the gospel into these countries in order to bring about uh, the, the abolition of slavery. And that's indeed what happened in Europe over a period of a thousand years until you get to Anselm of Canterbury who completely puts the kibosh on the slave trade into England. Abolitionists in America were often revolutionary. John Brown, the Secret Six, for example. John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. They killed a black man, by the way, a baggage handler and three other innocent citizens. That's what they were able to accomplish. It was a terrible thing. Uh, but it didn't fix the problem of slavery. We're not going to fix the problem of slavery by revolution. And if we attempt to do that, it usually ends up with more slavery. So we want to do it by legitimate authority. We want to do it in the wise way. I do believe we need to bring about the end of all chattel slavery in the world, including whatever is left uh, in other countries around the world. But do we do it by, you know, arming ourselves with guns and running out and killing people who are doing this kind of thing. Is that the way, what is accomplished? Uh, is this how it is accomplished? And my answer is we do it through the civil magistrate and by the proper authority that God has established. God would eventually deliver his people by a powerful act that did not involve Moses taking up arms against the Egyptians. I just make that point. Nevertheless, uh, this is the point at which Moses makes a critical decision. So I don't take the position that Moses sinned. I'm calling into question his wisdom. Moses took sides. Moses walked over the line. Moses refused to carry on the legacy of the Egyptian authority and leadership. Moses acted out from under the Pharaoh's authority. And in concert with what we said this morning... Moses obeyed God rather than man because it was his commission to be the leader of God's people and to deliver his people from Egypt. I would just simply say that killing the Egyptian was probably not a wise thing to do at the time, but it did result in his exile, which is fine, all according to God's providence in his life. So once again, Hebrews 11.24, let me read it one more time. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." So what is this reproach of Christ that Moses chose rather than to become somebody important and somebody who was taking up the cushy job in Egypt? What is the difference? Well, let me say this. The reason why we take up the reproach of Christ is because since the antithesis that was set up between Cain and Abel early on when Cain killed Abel, out of envy, there's been this massive line of antithesis between the people of God and the rest of the world. The whole world is set against Christ. I think we have to realize this, that, that the world is against us. 
And I'm not being paranoid here. I'm not encouraging you to be paranoid. I'm just simply saying, just because the world is against you doesn't mean you need to be paranoid. I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, But the world is against you. Jesus said the world would be against you. There are a lot of different cultures and religions in the world. Think about this. The Moabites, the Assyrians, the Syrians, the Babylonians. Think about all these that surrounded the people of God in Israel. You know, all the way from Egypt, all around, the, ba- the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Assyrians, the Moabites, the Romans. And then when you come to, to Christ, the Jews, as well as the Romans, the pagans, the humanists, the barbarians, the atheists, the polytheists, the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists. At points, these folks are set against each other. In fact, there are the Palestinians against the Jews. So... But when Jesus shows up, the line is drawn. And now, it's all of them against Jesus and his people. Are you with me? They tend to fight each other all the time, because that's what people do. But when Jesus shows up, it's the whole world, Romans and Jews, together against Jesus. That's my point. And so, when we show up to the scene, you have all these nations fighting each other, The pagans, the humanists, the atheists, the Muslims, the Hindus, the Buddhists, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Moabites, the Syrians, the Syrians, and they're all surrounding us. It really is an us-against-them scenario. When Moses stepped over the line, he signed up for a life of trouble. Now, the world presents what always appears to be the easy way. It's a sinful way. But it is that which is fleeting and superficial. It provides a promise of immediate satisfaction. That's what the world does. And I like to remember the two characters in Pilgrim's Progress. Remember passion and patience. Do you remember the two characters in the house of the interpreter? Where what it was passion wanted everything now. Won all of the delight and the pleasures for now. And this is the way people are. They find immediate pleasures out of their idols, out of their intoxications, their drugs, their alcohol, their pornography, whatever it is. They seem to enjoy an immediate delight, an immediate pleasure that comes from these things. But patience is that one who's waiting for the mother load. That is, his eggs aren't in this basket, but in the other. And so this is a mindset that really distinguishes those in the world and those in the church, those who are true believers. They're, they, they're, they're not expecting this world to provide the delights and the joys and the ultimate satisfaction. They're actually waiting for it over there. That's, that's their emphasis. That's where they're hoping to see it. It's over beyond this life in the kingdom of heaven. So it must be through much tribulation we enter the kingdom of heaven. The wilderness years would not be easy on Moses and the people of God. And even as they fight their way into the promised land, it's as if heaven taken by storm. Book by Watson, I'm seeing it this morning. Um, That's the the Christian way is we, we fight our way from here to there. It is through much tribulation we enter the kingdom of heaven. The path of faith usually involves more testing, more trials, and more fire than what your unsaved neighbors are going through. Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God 
than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. You looked for the reward. Faith looks to God for the reward. Faith trusts in God for the reward. And God is bigger than Egypt. He also endured as seeing him who is invisible. What does that mean? As the eyes of faith must with certainty make out the form of one who is invisible, the source of all of our blessings. This is a critical element of faith. Remember, Noah was warned of things not yet seen. This, 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 this invisible element shows up throughout Hebrews 11. Abraham went out to a place he could not see, not knowing where he was going. Moses endured as though seeing him who is invisible. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So this is our life. Our life is to wait for that which we cannot see. Moses believed the promises. He believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though he had been silent for 400 years. And when he broke the silence of the burning bush, we'll get to that tomorrow or next week, Moses immediately knew with whom he was speaking. Okay, let's move on to verses 13 through 15. Moses then intervened to try to establish peace between the brothers that were in um, some argument with each other. Remember that. Verses 13 through 15. I won't read all of these verses. But, uh, but here's some insight into the character of Moses. I want to park on this for just a little bit. Moses is an impressive person. And I do believe that there's a positive example that we, we get from Moses. And I, I, I hope that if you're a leader or with your father or mother in the home and you have to deal with, you know, you have to have some patience and some humility and meekness. Uh, Moses is a great example. I don't know if you've ever had people complain in your house, for example, you know, or you've ever had people in your church complain. Uh, Moses can be a great example for us. He was merciful. He, uh, he desired justice. He, he was a peacemaker in this story. Uh, he's a servant. Scripture tells us later that Moses is the meekest of men, more so than any man on the face of the earth. That's, and, and the context is this. Meekness betrays itself mostly in how we react to criticism. He, he didn't defend himself or complain about his afflictions and the abuse he took as a leader. Moses was meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is Moses. Also, we confront the character of the people of God here in verses 13 to 15. Not very nice people. And throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the scriptures are not hesitant to point out the, the rebellion and the covetousness and the quarrelsomeness and the contentiousness, the ingratitude, the irascibility, the uncooperativeness. Uh, need I go on? I mean, it was a tough crowd. No getting around it. How would you like to lead these people? Not very much fun. The people of God were incredibly difficult uh, to lead. These people displayed everything that is wrong with the human heart. They demonstrated in no uncertain terms. They needed regeneration, circumcision of heart, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the creation of the new creature in Jesus Christ. And thanks be to God, we have these blessings in the New Testament era. Not to say they didn't at points, but we have the outpouring of these things with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the coming of Christ. Nonetheless, Moses was saddled to have to lead these folks for the last 40 years of his life. Then verses 15 to 22, Moses intervened when women were taken advantage of at the community well, helped them water the sheep. Now, I'm not sure why so many marriages in the Old Testament come together at water wells. 
I think there might be something here for our young people um, hanging out by the well in the back 40. Uh, if you have a well on your property, you might just hang out there. Maybe something will happen. I don't know. But there seemed to be a lot of this with Isaac and Jacob and now Moses. But, you know, I, I was sort of scratching my head as to why this is the case. And, and you know, if you go through the stories, what do you find? Uh, but you find service there. And that's what Rebecca did. She served, right? And that's exactly what Jacob did. And that's exactly what Moses is doing. There's a serving mindset that's so important. And, and for, for anybody who wants to get married, I, this is man or woman alike, whether you're Rebecca or you're Moses, either way, be a diakonos. Now, I did a full presentation on leadership, uh, which I tried to get into all of the definitions and descriptions of leadership throughout Scripture. And the word diakonos is a very big part of leadership in Scripture. Now, it turns out that diakonos is the word for servant, and it literally means this, cloud of dust. Diakonos is a cloud of dust. So we talk about ministers in the church. What is a minister? It's a cloud of dust. This refers to the idea that when a need presents itself, the person has so sensitized himself to the need that all you see is a cloud of dust. In other words, you say something like, you know, the toilets were a mess in the bathrooms this afternoon. And you don't even see the person there. All you see is a cloud of dust. What does that mean? They've gone to take care of it. See, that, that, isn't that interesting? It's, it's a picture word. You don't get a lot of that in the Greek. But I, I think it's, it's helpful He's rushed off to get the thing done, and that's it. Is there's a need? Boom! Cloud of dust. It's, you don't see anything but a cloud of dust. That's a diakonos. That's a servant, and this is so essential for a, a biblical style leadership. And in my presentation on biblical leadership, I reviewed the words the Bible uses, and I came down to these four words. There were actually about maybe 40 or 50 or 60 descriptions we went through in that presentation. But these were the four major words for a leader. And I want you to think about Moses as I walk through this. Serving. That's what Moses was doing. I mean, hey, he he's grows up in, in Pharaoh's court. Now he's, you know, serving the, the sheep. Serving, stewardship. That is, a leader, a biblical leader is stewarding somebody else's goods. Shepherding, the third, and sacrifice. Four S's. In fact, I don't don't particularly like to use the word leadership when it comes to what we are doing in family or church. Move away from that Word. I, I think we need to go back to more biblical words. Now, the Bible does talk a little bit about leading, but mostly, mostly, this is about 99% of quote unquote leadership in Scripture serving, stewardship, shepherding, and sacrifice. Serving, stewardship, shepherding, and sacrifice. Now, the world has its own categories for leadership and its own recipes for success, but Moses, as I see it, was doing just this. Okay, let me close. Verses 23 to 25. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob and God looked down upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. So praise God. He remembered the covenant he made 400 years earlier. 
And this is emphasized in so many places throughout Scripture. Psalm 89, we read Psalm 105 before worship. God remembers his covenant. These were hard times for the children of Israel. Think about this. 80 years of killing babies. From the time that Moses was born, okay, 40 years, then 40 additional years as a shepherd. So we've got 80 years of killing babies. Or attempting to kill babies. 80 years of hardcore taxation, forced infanticide, slave labor, heavy-duty regulation, beatings, unjust imprisonments, or whatever tyrants do best. 80 years of it. That's, that's a long time. That's multiple generations of enslavement and terrible forms of enslavement. And at this point, it's possible the Israelites had forgotten the covenant, but God didn't. In their extremities... The Israelites cried out to God. He heard their cry, just waiting for their cry. And he was ready to help on the basis of his covenant and his desire to show mercy to those who cry out to him for that deliverance. And as we wrap up, I couldn't help but think of Psalm 107. So I'm just going to leave you with Psalm 107 tonight. Because again, the spiritual application is when you wake up and realize you are in handcuffs to your sin. Whatever that addiction, idolatry, or whatever it might be. You wake up and realize, Psalm 107, what a beautiful psalm. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down, and there was none to help them. And then they cried out to the Lord in their troubles, and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death, broke their chains in pieces, and oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron into. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these great promises and your true to your covenant, to your promises. And you are a God who is ready to show mercy to any one of us. As we cry out to you, as we sense our bondage, as we sense our need for deliverance and redemption, God, at any point, you are so merciful and so good and so ready to hear and so ready to, to, to act upon your covenant that we are just to cry to you and you will bring about a great, great redemption by the blood of the covenant. By the blood of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the price for us. Thank you for this. We pray your blessing upon this word to each and every one of us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.